0: Good morning, good afternoon, and
1: good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. And this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then, let's get to it. Today we're talking about being afflicted and addicted, lusting to feel good in the global public health crisis that substance abuse has brought us all. My first guests are Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman and Mike Long. Dr. Lieberman is a professor and vice chair for clinical affairs in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at George Washington University. He has provided insight on psychiatric issues for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the U.S. Department of Commerce, and the Office of Drug and Alcohol Policy, and has discussed mental health interviews on CNN, C-SPAN, and PBS. And his writing partner and co-author is... Physicist Michael E. Long, who is an award-winning speechwriter, screenwriter, and playwright. A popular speaker and educator, Mr. Long has addressed audiences around the world, including a keynote at Oxford University. He teaches writing at Georgetown University, where he is a former director of writing. Mr. Long pursued undergraduate studies at Murray State University and graduate studies at Vanderbilt University. Guys, let's get to it. Let's talk about what this dopamine thing is.
2: Hey, thanks for having us, Lisa.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure.
3: Come on. <laughs> oh, it's so it's, it's so good to, to talk to somebody who's enthusiastic. We love
2: it. It's the it, best, Lisa.
1: It is. It is. So what is dopamine and why are we so crazy for it?
2: You know, we called the book The Molecule of More because the role of dopamine is simply to get us more. This is the chemical that makes us look into the future and think about how can we maximize our future resources. It's a delicious chemical because it gives us optimism. It gives us the drive and the energy to say tomorrow is going to be better than today and I'm going to work hard to make it that way.
3: I think that it's worth mentioning too that that dopamine does nothing less than divide the world for us, the way we perceive the world. There are things that we don't have and things that we do have. The things that we do have that we can appreciate with our, with our senses that are within our immediate grasp, those are all uh, appreciated through a, a range of, uh, of neurotransmitters, of brain chemicals, and, and we call those the here and nows. Now what's interesting is that when you're talking about something you don't have, Something you want, the desire for more. All those chemicals relatively fall away and and dopamine takes over. This is the single molecule in your brain that allows us to manipulate the abstract, to deal with what is not yet, with what might be. It gives us the desire to to achieve, to move forward, to do the things that aren't in the immediate vicinity of, of our current moment.
1: So, uh, check in with us here for a second. When we talk about the pleasure center in the brain and the, the basic human drive for food, sex, um, the things that drive the average human being, and somebody who has tipped the scales from being sort of a, an average person into addiction where they're constantly craving more of that dopamine release, what's going on? What's going on under the human hood?
2: Well, the dopamine system evolved obviously to keep us alive to keep us eating, reproducing, winning competitions, building tools, et cetera. And so it feels very, very good when we do these things. And in return, we get this dopamine stimulation. The problem comes when people engage in behaviors that stimulate that circuit too hard. And it becomes an obsessive focus of their life. And that's what drugs do. All drugs of abuse stimulate dopamine. And every drug that simulates dopamine is liable to be abused. So what happens is that the bigger the burst of dopamine you get, the more important something seems. So for example, if you get a 10% raise at work, that feels really good. But if you get a promotion that doubles your salary, that feels even better. And the dopamine release corresponds to the magnitude of the reward drugs, chemicals of abuse are like a guided missile. It's a direct chemical blast to the system that really outweighs anything that nature is capable of giving us. And so it gives people this message, hey, nothing in your life, no promotion, no relationship, no nothing is more important than feeding your brain this drug of abuse because it gives you the biggest dopamine hit. And that's how these Kinds of things can take over our lives.
1: What about love? I mean, there's nothing as juicy as being newly in love. Why is that? Well,
3: you know, I I believe one way to think about it is that love has two phases it has the romantic phase and then it has the companionate phase when you're actually enjoying being with somebody. At first, love is a world of possibilities. You see somebody across the room, you can imagine. A great life with it. You can imagine anything you want with that person. The possibilities are endless. It's different from what you have now. And you can idealize it. And that's that dopamine burst. That's the hit. This could be wonderful. Now, as you get to know that person, uh, the mystery surrounding, uh, surrounding them begins to fade. There's less new to learn until the time comes that you're not having a feeling of love based on the dopamine urge, the dopamine uh, optimism of more. Now, what you know about them is all a matter of the senses, in the five senses, the way you they feel, they look, they touch, and that's a different kind of feeling entirely. You have to appreciate it versus and anticipated. Early love, anticipating what might be. Later love, mm. appreciating what is. This is why so many people chase love, fall in love, move to the next one, because all they can do is anticipate love. And actually being a companion is is too much for them. For instance, George Costanza.
1: <laughs> Talk a little bit about him.
3: Well, George, if you remember Seinfeld, I always to me, he's he's everybody's other personality. I think George constantly wanted to find a woman to make his life complete. He would meet a woman. He would pursue her. And as soon as she liked him back, as soon as the chase was over, boom, George Costanza was no longer interested. All he wanted was pursuit. He was incapable of engaging in a companionate relationship, so much so that when he fell in love and got engaged, he wanted to be unengaged as soon as possible. And when his his uh, fiancé, if you remember his fiancé, died from licking the, the <laughs> glue off of envelopes and the glue was poisoned, he wasn't <laughs> heartbroken. He was thrilled because now he was free. It was so black and dark. He was free to once again pursue the love he didn't know, the love he didn't have. That was the thing that George was best at. And for so many of us, that's what love is. It's on to the next one, on to the next one. That's mm-hmm. why love doesn't last very long for some people. As soon as the mystery is gone, the companionate part is a requirement that we can't quite pull off.
1: I once interviewed anthropologist Helen Fisher, and she was talking about the human brain newly in love and on cocaine that, and an fMRI both looked similar. The brains lit up similarly.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely true. Love is a powerful trigger for dopamine. And as Mike was pointing out, in some ways, it's about anticipation. If I could just bring Winnie the Pooh in for a moment, there is a scene in the House of Pooh corner where Christopher Robin asks him, what do you like best in all the world? And Winnie the Pooh is about to say, honey, but then it occurs to him, There's this moment just before you eat the honey that's better than eating the honey itself, and that's dopamine. It's anticipation. It's expecting something wonderful, and in a way, that's also love. It's a kind of love that Helen Fisher has called passionate love, and as Mike pointed out, a lot of it is imaginary. This person that we're passionately in love with in some ways isn't a real person, They're an idealized person that exists only in our head. And that phase of love lasts for about 12 months. But after that point, you start to have to engage with the real person. And for those of us who have been in a longer-term relationship, we know what that's like. It's a mixed bag. There's no longer that dopaminergic euphoria, but it shifts from this constant state of longing and driven excitement to, ideally, a state of quiet satisfaction, fulfillment – And Helen Fisher refers to that as the companionate phase of love. And that's driven by different chemicals. The one that most people are familiar with is oxytocin. It very much helps you focus on what you have in this relationship and not what might be better with a different relationship.
1: Mm, Beautifully said. Talk a little bit about how dopamine works in terms of domination, you know, winning, conquering.
2: Well, you know, there are a number of different dopamine pathways that go through the brain. We've been talking about a pathway that in the book we call the desire pathway. That's the one that makes us want things, and that's the one that makes us high when we are anticipating getting something important. But there's another pathway as well, and that's a pathway that leads up to the frontal lobes. It's a part of your brain that is relatively new in evolutionary terms, and it gives us some of the higher processing power that sets humans apart from other animals. Both of these pathways are about looking forward into the future to maximizing future resources, but the time course is different. With the desire pathway... It's pretty much, I want it now. That's what goes off when <laughs> yeah, when you see a donut. To scratch when the you see, Yeah. You see a sexy person across the room. But the other pathway, the control pathway, is really one of a longer-term view. And it's less interested in things like donuts and sex and more interested in long-term gain, such as honor and promotions and wealth. And that's the one that's more going to help us dominate our environment. It's going to look around, look at the resources that are available now, look at the resources that are going to require planning and work, and put together a sequence of events that is going to maximize what a person can get.
1: So when you talk about the frontal lobe, are, are you talking about the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that governs reason, accountability, et cetera, et cetera?
2: Yeah, exactly. And this pathway is the pathway that is not working properly in people with ADHD. And that's why they tend to be impulsive, going after short-term things. They have difficulty planning long-term. And that's why we treat them with medications like um, Adderall and Ritalin that boost dopamine in their brain.
1: Let me ask you a question about that for one second. Because I would say a good 70% of the clients that I see in my practice – in my addiction recovery practice, have ADD or ADHD or were diagnosed when they were younger. And they gravitated towards whatever their drugs of choice or behaviors of choice became as a result of trying to manage their condition.
2: Yeah. And, you know, early on, people with ADHD are very vulnerable to addictions because... This circuit that tells them, hey, this might not be such a good idea for your long-term success, you need to resist this temptation, that circuit's not working very well. And so the short-term desire circuit tends to work unopposed. Early on, there were some concerns. Do we really want to give these people who are very vulnerable to addiction things like amphetamines? Yeah. And, right? <laughs> it, it sounds kind of crazy on the surface, Yeah, but good well-designed studies have shown unambiguously yes we do want to do it because strengthening this longer term control circuit far outweighs any problems people have with the medication itself and in fact what they found was that the earlier you give it to them in terms of how old the patient is and the higher you do, uh, you dose it All of those things push down the risk of addiction. A little bit counterintuitive, but that's what the data says. We're going to
1: jump off to a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman and Michael E. Long. We're talking about their newest book, The Molecule of More How a Single Molecule in Your Brain Drives Love, Sex, and Creativity. And we'll determine the fate of the human race. We're going to come right back and continue the conversation. To learn more, please visit MoleculeOfMore.com. On Twitter, at MoleculeOfMore. On Facebook, MoleculeOfMore. And we're hashtagging MoleculeOfMore. We are going to jump off to a break. But before we do, I want to talk with you about your health and happiness. One of the ways I take good care of myself is by using Ritual Essentials for Women, Ritual has reimagined multivitamins to fill the gap in women's diets. Recently, I changed up and streamlined my vitamin supplement routine using Ritual to get more of what women need, including vitamins D3 and omega-3, all with a fresh, minty flavor and no fishy aftertaste. Instead of gobbling a handful of vitamin pills each day, I've reduced it down to two clear and digestible, easy-to-swallow capsules a day. This makes life a little easier, happier, and healthier. Ritual also offers essential prenatal vitamins for women thinking about it, trying, and expecting. The best thing about Ritual is that all ingredients are traceable and transparent. Products are vegan-friendly, sugar-free, non-GMO, gluten-free, and allergen-free. Ritual products are clear capsules that are 100% out there for the world to see. And here's the cool and convenient part. Ritual is a subscription delivery program that's easy to start and easy to snooze. Ritual delivers a monthly boost to your health and happiness for less than a dollar a day and helps provide all the essential nutrients that your body needs. So whether you're living life or creating a new one, why not add some good-looking science to your daily routine? Visit ritual.com slash happiness to start your ritual today. Once again, that's ritual.com slash happiness.
0: We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Today, we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Before we return to the
1: conversation, I want to remind everyone listening that we spend about one-third of our lives between the sheets. I mention this because it's been scientifically proven that getting a good night's sleep absolutely contributes to human happiness and well-being. So here's my question to you. Are your bed linens luxuriously soft and inviting delicious restorative Z's each night? Hmm. Recently, I discovered the best and most comfortable five-star hotel quality sheets that don't break the bank. They're made by Brooklinen, the fastest-growing bedding brand in the world. Brooklinen is Good Housekeeping's winner of the best online bedding category. Brooklinen's mission is to bring fashionable and top-notch linens directly to you at prices that won't keep you up at night. This means all the comfy thread count and stylish design without the high prices, middlemen, or markup. And now it's your turn to upgrade your bed to sleep sanctuary status. Brooklinen.com is giving an exclusive offer to just my listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use the code HARVESTING at Brooklinen.com. Brooklinen is so confident in their products that all their sheets, comforters, and towels come with a lifetime warranty. The only way to get the $20 off in free shipping is to use the promo code HARVESTING at brooklinen.com. Once again, that's brooklinen.com, and the promo code is HARVESTING. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, and the promo code is HARVESTING. Brooklinen. These really are the best sheets ever. Let's rejoin the conversation. We're talking about The Molecule of More. This is a book, The Molecule of More, How a Single Molecule in Your Brain Drives Love, Sex, and Creativity and Will Determine the Fate of the Human Race. My guests today are the authors, Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman and Michael E. Long. All right, guys, let's jump back into the conversation and talk about the role of dopamine in both creativity and madness.
3: Well, let's, let, let's talk a little about creativity. And I think. The best place to start when you think about creativity is to define what it is you actually mean by creativity. And we have a definition we like, and it's pretty good, I think. And that is that being creative is associating things that don't normally go together. If you think about some of the most creative things or things we'll call creative that people enjoy, they fit that definition. Someone like Brian Wilson, for instance, of the Beach Boys. Do you like Brian Wilson? Well, if you do, you probably notice that. That his famous record Pet Sounds has things that go together only on Pet Sounds. Who else would use a, a theorem in that? that spooky sound, you know, (laughs) from uh, who else would use a theremin in a record along with bleating goats and uh, fire engine uh, sirens? Who would do that sort of thing? We appreciate a mismatch, if you will. And one of the things that we see in creativity is just that, connecting things that don't belong together. Now, if you think about mental illness, one of the things that defines mental illness is the inability to stop connecting things that don't go together. Sort of a what psychiatrists call a word salad, for instance, is an example. A roar of words coming out of the mouth of a, a person with mental illness that don't go together. You can begin to see, if you think about that, that mental illness is a lot like creativity and in fact a creative brain is more like a mentally ill brain than a normal brain. Why? Because the difference is one of degree. People who are creative actually can they don't have so many associations between things that they can't control them, can't make something out of them. Mentally ill people on the other hand are so overwhelmed with connections that they can't conduct their lives in a normal way. And dopamine is behind that. Dopamine is the, well let me let Dan jump in here. I've been talking for a while about creativity. I'll pass it on to Dan and let him handle the chemical side.
2: One of the things that people do when they have a very highly active dopamine system, which does characterize both creative people and people who suffer from certain psychiatric illnesses, is that they tend to be novelty-seeking. That is, they get bored very easily with the same old, same old. They always want something new, something unexpected, something that they can anticipate. So they go through life with their eyes very, very wide open, and that makes them able to make these creative connections. One of the most famous creative acts in history was the Eureka moment, when it was discovered that the displacement of water gave you a sense of volume. Uh, When Archimedes sat in the tub, saw it overflow, and ran around Athens naked screaming (laughs) Eureka, I found it. He had sat in a bath dozens and dozens of times before, but this time he noticed something he'd never noticed before. And that's what high levels of dopamine can make you do. And it can be a wonderful thing when it leads to creative insight, but it can also be very difficult because it makes it hard to pay attention to the ordinary stuff. Mm. And that's why we sometimes think of artists as being almost like helpless children when it comes to everyday life. Their head is in the clouds. They're obsessed with finding something new. And so they don't comb their hair. They put on two different color socks and their room is an absolute mess. When it gets to be so severe that it turns into a mental illness, people slip into a world of unreality where they're no longer looking for new things in their environment, but their brain begins to produce phantoms that fulfill the need for new things. And we start to see paranoia and even delusions.
3: Mm. You can also see here, Lisa, why a lot of people who are highly creative, highly accomplished, turn out to be real jerks. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No. Really? (laughs) (laughs) They are, as Dan put it, they have their head in the clouds. Their dopamine is the active system. Their H&Ns, the here and nows, the things that are around them, not so much. And so they don't prioritize how how they uh, treat other people, how they interact with other people, what other people think about them. It's all about the abstract. In fact, if you look at uh, the the, uh, accounts of Socrates, not being a jerk, simply shutting down, standing in place for or as it's recorded, days at a time, just caught up in the abstract, caught up in the future, caught up in his own thoughts. It's easy to imagine how someone so caught up in possibility would simply mistreat the people around them.
1: Mm, Sounds a little familiar. I
3: hope not, but it could be.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm thinking about just in our social climate today. It it is a it's a, a familiar scent.
2: It it is. It is. People who have highly dopaminergic uh, brains – tend to be very focused on achieving goals. And sometimes they will justify trampling on other people's feelings, trampling on other people's rights, because with dopamine, you can sometimes say the end justifies the means. Uh, just because dopamine is so focused on maximizing these future resources, that it may neglect some of the niceties of everyday social interaction.
1: So for us humans who are dopamine crazy, what is the solution? How can we learn to balance our dopamine and find other ways of releasing or constructive ways of releasing these chemicals in our brains to make us feel balanced, happy, and and most alive?
2: Well, it's important to remember that dopamine is in the future. Dopamine is about things that we want, but don't yet have. And It's important to balance that with an appreciation of what we do have. And let me give you an example of somebody who doesn't do that. Think of somebody who who plans a visit to, let's say, Italy, and they're so excited about visiting the Vatican and gazing at all the beautiful art. So they get to the Vatican, they're standing in front of this art, and their mind is wandering. They're thinking about where they're going to go for dinner. Or or more prosaically, you feel like you'd really love to have an ice cream cone, and you're all excited about getting it, But as soon as you're eating it, once again, your mind is wandering. You're thinking about what's next rather than thinking about the tastes and textures of that beautiful ice cream. So in order to balance ourselves out, in order to make ourselves not so obsessed with dopamine, we've got to learn to spend some time in the present. And of course, a lot of people have been saying that. We hear lots and lots about mindfulness. Don't always think about what's next. Try to pay attention to the sights, the sounds, the experiences of right here, right now because that can give so many benefits. It can give us serenity, it can give us peace, satisfaction, and just get us off that treadmill of constantly seeking more.
3: Yeah. If, if I can just jump in, Lisa, I love this example, I'm, I'm gonna share it. One way that creativity presents itself outside of art is achievement in business, because that does take seeing, uh, for instance, a, an area of the marketplace that hasn't been addressed or hasn't been addressed in an efficient way. A lot of people who are highly successful with all the money that comes with it aren't very good at enjoying their money. And here's what I mean. Have you ever noticed that the person most likely to be able to afford a beautiful house right there on the beach is often the person least likely to go out there and sit in the Adirondack chair and wiggle his toes or her toes in the sand. The people the, yes. the people who yes. can yeah the, <laughs> the people who have earned it can't enjoy it and they're off to earn the next thing in the same way Dan talked about a, a trip. And that has obviously that's that's to their detriment and there are ways to around it, but there's also something sadly positive about it and that is This shows how clearly dopamine is the engine of human progress. It makes us not want, it it doesn't make us want the thing itself. It just makes us want more, something new. So instead of sitting in the Adirondack chair, that guy gets up and thinks about how to start a new business because that's what gives him the enjoyment. That's what gives him the pleasure. So the inability to enjoy, which we certainly do want to overcome to the extent we can, is also part of the key to why we have so much, why other people who aren 't quite as dopaminergic get to enjoy so much, this is what drives us into the future, the dissatisfaction with now
1: uh, very, very well said, and I do know those kinds that you're describing. I had a husband once, and he said to me, How can you I near the ocean he says How can you sleep at night it's so noisy here <laughs> 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 So there you have it. Right. And we're as two different people motivated by very different things. So I do get what you're saying. But that now thing about finding some level of equanimity in the now, I think, is what many of us are seeking today.
3: Yeah, um, we have a choice. We're not slaves to dopamine after all, but it is hard work to switch over to the here and nows.
2: And there's so much that tempts us not to do it. So much of technology and social media and all of these wonderful services that are You might say being offered to us for free. You might say being shoved down our throat. They're constantly telling us, hey, there's a little bit of dopamine uh, just one second away on your cell phone or on your computer. See if somebody liked your post. See if there's an interesting news story. And I think it becomes harder and harder to just say, I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to look at nature. I'm going to focus on the person in front of me. I'm going to live in the present moment. Because those kinds of things don't generate revenue for companies. At least we haven't shifted to the part where we learn how to generate revenue from that so that we can make it something we promote in our culture. But for now, it's all about more is where the money is. And so those are the kinds of forces that are working against us.
3: And it's got to be said from every forum that we can have for sure. Uh, because not everybody agrees. This is your choice. You are not at the mercy of societal forces. They may be something to battle, but that's not the end of the game. If you choose to focus on the now, you can, but you must decide and you must work at it. It's not enough to say, I'm at the mercy of my cell phone. I'm at the mercy of the media. You're not. But if you choose to be, you are.
1: But here's the thing with dopamine and and my understanding of how it works and Dan is the doctor. Please jump in and correct me. That once that part of the brain, that pleasure center is activated and recognizes that dopamine reward is coming, it wants more and more and more to the point where that choice mechanism becomes flawed.
2: It's true. And you know, at this point I think we're even getting into the realm of philosophy when we talk about free will. Because I think that things like drugs of abuse and other things that powerfully trigger dopamine, perhaps even social media, impair our free will. It, It never takes it away completely, but it makes it harder and harder to say no. And that's where healthcare professionals can come in, because healthcare professionals can push on the other side and say, look, there's these forces lined up against you, pushing you to make bad decisions we can bring forces to bear on the other side to balance things and let you ultimately decide where you're going to take your life.
1: Mm. Well said we are out of time. Will you guys come back and hang out? I feel like there's so much more we could talk about in this realm I mean, there's so many directions and we just sort of scratched the surface. The book we're talking about today is the molecule of more, how a single molecule in your brain drives love, sex and creativity and will determine the fate of the human race. That's the book. The authors are my guests today, Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman and Michael E. Long. To learn more, visit MoleculeOfMore.com, on Twitter at MoleculeOfMore, Facebook MoleculeOfMore, and hashtag it at MoleculeOfMore. Here comes the break. We'll be right back.
0: Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control. Ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com.
1: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about being afflicted and addicted, lusting to feeling good, and the global public health crisis of substance abuse. My next guest is author Travis Lupik. Travis Lupik is an award winning journalist based in Vancouver's downtown East Side. He works as a staff reporter for the Georgia Strait newspaper and has also written about drug addiction, harm reduction, and mental health for the Toronto Star and Al Jazeera English, among other outlets. For his reporting on Canada's opioid crisis, Lupik received the Canadian Association of Journalists prestigious Don mcgillivray award for best overall investigative report of 2016 and two 2017 jack webster awards for excellence in bc journalism welcome travis thanks for joining me
4: thank you so much for having me and thank you for such a uh, kind introduction
1: well, the work that you're doing I think is is stellar and it needs to be reported. We are looking at not just an epidemic in the United States and in Canada but around the world. And you and I spoke briefly before we started our conversation on the air about everybody knows an addict and you so appropriately stated and everybody knows somebody who's now died of addiction.
4: Yeah, I report on a daily basis for the newspaper here in Vancouver on uh, what Vancouver's come to call the fentanyl crisis. And we noticed that that barrier broke down a couple of years ago now. You know, before, it was everybody knew somebody who knew somebody who had passed away. And now it's, uh, sadly, everybody knows somebody who has passed away.
1: So it's no longer six degrees of separation. It's more like one or two.
4: It's really it's really not. I mean, in Vancouver, people in the United States might be more familiar with Philadelphia, for example, adjusted for population. Our overdose deaths are about on par with Philadelphia, 50 per 100,000, which is a horrifying number. And that, yeah, that degree of separation has been broken down at this point. Everybody knows somebody who has passed away and been affected by this.
1: You state an interesting fact in the book. There were 64,000 fatal overdoses across the United States in 2016, which is up from just 15,000 20 years prior. That is huge.
4: It's frightening. It eclipses deaths from car accidents. I mean, in Canada, you have similar statistics vastly eclipse deaths from guns, um, homicides. In both countries now, the number one cause of death for people under 50 is a drug overdose. The number one cause of death. It's a really scary problem that's developed.
1: Frightening, and many people don't realize it. That you know, we think of drug addiction and drug overdoses as something that's happening in the streets with just children, and that is the case. But also, we're seeing older adults experiencing the same addiction crisis and subsequent overdoses.
4: There's absolutely no stereotype for the victim that this overdose epidemic is claiming. A good journalist friend of mine, with uh, with the CBC, Canada's uh, NPR. His uncle, who's a prestigious lawyer in British Columbia, passed away recently. And my reporter friend has been covering the fentanyl crisis alongside me and found him writing a story about his own uncle.
1: Wow. And when we talk about the fentanyl crisis and the addiction epidemic, we're really talking about a very human condition that unites all of us in that we want to eliminate our suffering. I think there's a misunderstanding about the soul or the personality of an addict.
4: I've interviewed hundreds at this point, hundreds of people who use drugs and who, who became addicted to drugs. And the addiction is never the root problem. The addiction is a the symptom. The, the root problem is pain. So often people using illegal drugs like heroin are self-medicating, whether that's a physical ailment and you know, the first drugs they, they received were prescribed in a doctor's office, or whether that's an emotional element, childhood trauma, and they sought heroin on the street to deal with that childhood trauma. The, the root causes of this drug epidemic are things like depression and um, pain.
1: And none of us wants that, whether we're using a drug or not. Talk about what makes Vancouver unique, because British Columbia, I think that you guys up there are leaps and bounds ahead of us down here in terms of how we manage addiction.
4: We do some things right. We do some things wrong. But we do do a lot of things right, especially where harm reduction is concerned. In 2003, Vancouver established North America's first supervised injection facility, Insight, and that really solidified our reputation as a leader on harm reduction. And since fentanyl arrived in, say, 2011, 12, 13, the harm reduction debate has sort of been reignited in Vancouver, and we've since taken a lot of steps beyond Insight. We've flooded the streets with naloxone. um, That's the so-called overdose antidote that reverses the effects of an opiate. Um, naloxone is free and over-the-counter in Vancouver, and you, you see little clips strapped to people's belts all over the city. I'm really not exaggerating. You see it walking down the street all the time. Since the winter of 2016 in downtown Vancouver, we've opened up more than a half a dozen what we now call overdose prevention sites, which are sort of like mini strip-down injection sites. So we're doing a lot of things right. We've taken harm reduction certainly further than any other jurisdiction in North America now. But fentanyl is a really tricky problem, and, and sadly, the deaths have not declined.
1: And when you talk about harm reduction in the use of uh, naloxone or Narcan, which is, I believe is what it's called down here, right. you guys are way ahead of the curve. Here, it's not readily available. It's costly. There's a, a stigma if you do have it on you, and I think that... Nobody should have to die of an overdose, right? If you are helping somebody to live and you give them services and you know Gabor Maté writes a lot about this, right? You know, give somebody a sense of community and purpose and to be part of something, then you're really on the road to really treating what is underlying the illness or the diagnosis of addiction.
4: I think what you're saying, I think what it really comes down to is just treating drug users like human beings. If somebody is addicted to heroin and um is using that heroin to self-medicate pain. They shouldn't have to do that in an alley where they're injecting something into their body using puddle water and looking over their corner uh, afraid of, of police persecution. They should have access to a safe room like the rooms at Insight where they have clean water, where it's a nurse looking over them instead of a police officer. I think that's just about treating people like human beings.
1: And seeing the suffering. You know, in the work I do with clients and a lot of the clients are heroin users. Some of them have come to us as the result of an overdose and fentanyl being part of the equation sometimes if they're lucky to survive. And when they see that they can be loved and cared for and looked after when they might not necessarily be able to possess that for themselves in the beginning. Therein lies the opportunity for the shift.
4: Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's a big piece of harm reduction that's often not discussed. It is not harm reduction's primary goal to shoot people into the treatment system. Harm reduction approaches people without judgment, without motive, and and says, here's whatever help you need. But an unintended consequence, if you will, is that a lot of people do find treatment through, through harm reduction. At Vancouver's Insight facility, there are registered nurses who, are, who will happily connect anybody uh, injecting drugs at Insight to a detox facility or to a treatment facility. There's actually a detox facility directly above Insight called Onsite. While it's not the primary goal of harm reduction, a lot of people do find treatment through harm reduction.
1: Well, I think people find connection when they come for harm reduction.
4: That's a really excellent word for it that's all this is. Instead of you know, forcing people to use drugs in an alley, they can use drugs in an environment where they feel safe, where they establish connection.
1: Most addicts that I have spoken with, and I've been doing this a long time, they will all say at some point they will come to the end of a run. Even though they may love the drug, they realize that it's destructive force and the challenge becomes not getting off the drug, but staying off the drug because the, the way that we treat People who are afflicted by addiction is not a sustainable model, right? It's really easy to get somebody off their drug of choice. It's really hard to keep them off it.
4: Yeah, what I think we need to do is create a more caring environment for people who are trying um, to get off of drugs. I understand why drugs are illegal. I get the logic and I understand the logic of sending police officers after drug users. But when you really begin to think about that situation, it doesn't make sense by sending police officers after drug users, you create stress and anxiety and fear. And those are emotions that drive people to drugs, not away from them. Yeah. Um, conversely, an environment like insight where there's a caring nurse, you know, rubbing your shoulders and saying, I'm here from you. That's a really comforting environment where people will feel less inclined to use drugs.
1: I agree. We're going to go to a break in a minute. And before we do, I want to give our listeners your contact information. We're talking with Travis Lupik about his book, Fighting for Space, how a group of drug users transformed one city's struggle with addiction. To learn more, please visit www.fightingforspace.com. On Twitter, he is at t Lupik, and that's L-U-P-I-C-K. And on Facebook, the handle is the same. T. Lupik and when we come back Travis, I want to talk about something that Vancouver has done that is very unique in its supply of housing to this population. So hang with me and we'll come back and we'll carry on the conversation. We're going to take that break we'll be right back and that's a promise.
0: Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about
1: a very important subject, and that is affliction and addiction, lusting to feel good, and the global public health crisis that substance abuse has touched probably every single one of us in some way. I'm continuing the conversation with author Travis Lupik. So, Travis, prior to the break, you were talking about harm reduction in the city of Vancouver. I'd love to talk about housing because Vancouver has done something unique, what I consider to be a model in providing housing and medical services to those who are challenged by addiction.
4: Yeah, this is really the story that I tell in Fighting for Space. It begins in a rough part of Vancouver called the Downtown Eastside in the year 1990, when a very young nurse uh, named Liz Evans, arrived in this neighborhood when she was just 25 years old and was given a contract to provide mental health services in a real beat-up old hotel here called The Portland. And Liz started doing this this really, really simple but really revolutionary thing. She took people in off the streets and she said, you live here now. You will always live here now. You will not be evicted for using drugs. Uh, you will not be evicted if your mental, uh, mental health situation is destructive or, or disruptive. You live here now. And... Again, it had this really interesting unintended consequence. She discovered that when people were given a home without condition, they used drugs less. They had less mental health outbursts. Uh, That anxiety of eviction was removed, and it began to address all these other problems. So 25 years later, 20 years later, we started calling this Housing First. Uh, Your your listeners can look it up. It has a Wikipedia page, Housing First. But in the early 1990s, long before that term was used, Liz Evans was doing this in, in hotels in Vancouver.
1: When you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, and, you know, viewing the needs as a human being as a pyramid, the basic need of all of us is shelter, food and shelter. And if you do not have food and shelter, it's pretty hard for you to be effective in any other area of your life.
4: And we don't make housing easy for drug users. Right. So many supportive housing projects across North America will evict you if you're caught with drugs. And if you're truly addicted, if you have a physical dependence on drugs, the added anxiety and fear that that must create that you are not even stable in your housing situation, that you can be kicked to the streets at any time, that creates a relentless added anxiety on people that very likely pushes a lot of people to more drug use. It's very Mm -hmm. counterintuitive.
1: Well, I think the whole problem is very counterintuitive. You know, we want to institutionalize the problem, medicalize the problem, and really what we're talking about are human hearts and minds that require something else in order to help them heal.
4: Too often, our approach to drug use and our policies around drug users are based on morals as opposed to science or even logic. I understand that drug use is wrong and, you know, we don't want to create a such a friendly environment for drug use. But the environment that we're creating around drug users is one that only pushes them to greater drug use. It does not actually address uh, what they're feeling, why they're using drugs. It does not help them stop. Well, dealing
1: with mental health, for example, if we stigmatize mental health, then people are less apt to seek it out, or perhaps it's not even available to them, you know, that in their healthcare system, or they might lack availability of healthcare, this is their way out of handling mental health.
4: Yeah, both in the United States and in Canada, we make it actually exceptionally difficult for people to to obtain mental health services. Systems are siloed, people are pushed from one building to the next. And then when they take care of themselves, uh, unfortunately, sometimes through drug use, we persecute them and we incarcerate them. It's a very unfair
1: system. It's unfair and it doesn't work. I often say to my clients and their eyes light up when I say it, I'm like, you walk into facilities like these knowing exactly what to do in order to be addiction-free. You're bright. Every single person that I come in contact with, for the most part, is intelligent. They already know their disconnect comes from the brain being hijacked by the substances and the inability to make the decisions, to self-regulate, to manage the triggers and cravings is at the root of the mechanics of the addiction, right? So there are two sides, right? There's the mechanics, the neuroscience of what goes on in the brain, and then there's the very human heart aspect of it, of a hurting heart.
4: Yeah, and, and that sounds complicated because it is complicated. Addiction is a tricky thing to treat because you have to address all the different aspects that you just just described and so we have to make extra effort to give people um, the time and the strength to address all, all of that. Um, and one way Vancouver is doing that now, and this will sound controversial, but in Vancouver is, is increasingly um, giving prescription opiates to people who are addicted, giving a drug called hydromorphone, brand name Dilaudid, or at one facility in Vancouver, even giving people prescription heroin. At Crosstown Clinic in Vancouver, three times a day, there's a select number of about 100 patients who can receive prescription heroin. And while that will sound radical, what's happened at this clinic, what I've watched happen at this clinic is its patients are removed from the hustle of a daily addiction and are allowed or given time to work on that complex problem that you just described.
1: Yeah. Though that is amazing. I was unaware of that project of the prescription heroin. But it does make sense because you're talking about a long term treatment protocol. You know, 30 days doesn't do it. 90 days doesn't do it. Maybe after two years, somebody's brain has begun to heal enough that they really have a chance at licking this
4: thing. This is hard. Yeah, Crosstown's Clinics Prescription Heroin Program is a multi-year program for a long time entrenched addicts. But I've followed so many of these clients for almost five years now, and the changes I've seen in them over the past five years are just amazing. Many, many of them have lowered their dose. Many of them have transitioned from an injection therapy to an oral therapy, and many of them I've seen return to the workforce. And I know uh, more than several of these patients who are working plus 30 hours a week. That's
1: really interesting. Because I think that you've given back their dignity by doing this.
4: Yeah, you've, you've returned them to society. They're still maintaining an addiction. You know, that, that's a problem that still needs to be uh, solved down the line. But you're no longer criminalizing them. You're no longer pushing them into alleys. They're a member of society again. And they have housing. And they're contributing again. And all of that makes them feel better. And that allows them to use less drugs.
1: What does the population of vancouver and british columbia think of this i mean because to me this is an absolute stellar model but the average person if you were to walk up to them on the street who is not connected to this part of the world what would they say are they in favor of this
4: well that's an interesting question because i'm a journalist and i write for the daily papers here and of course i'm writing for daily papers you always try to include both sides of a story in vancouver There is only one side to this story at this point. I don't really have anyone to go to for a voice against an injection facility or even a a voice against this prescription heroin program we're talking about. But that's because Vancouver's been having this conversation for a long time. We've been talking about harm reduction in a real serious way and about injection sites since the mid-1990s now. So, you know, we've had 20 years to talk it through. So I really understand how this stuff can sound radical and scary to jurisdictions that haven't had that 20-year conversation. And what I'm really hoping we can do with the book Fighting for Space is help other jurisdictions who are now just starting that conversation uh, have a more informed conversation.
1: Well, it's one that we need to be having down here in cities uh, across the country because we have a huge problem on our hands. There are not enough people who are educated in terms of how To really deal with these challenges, because you have sort of the medical side of it, you do X, Y, and Z, then here's your result. And then you have the mental health side where it's saying, you know, you need to get into the underlying issues, the childhood trauma and all of those things. And that's all well and good. But in the meantime, a whole lot of people are going to be dying if we don't do something.
4: Yeah, Vancouver's fentanyl problem is North America's fentanyl problem. Uh, Lately, I've been spending a lot of time talking with folks in Philadelphia and Boston, uh, New York, cities where I'm taking Fighting for Space next month. And there are people, though, that are dying to have this conversation in those cities. And it really has started up. Um, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio said he's talking about injection sites now. Philadelphia again, Boston. The conversation is happening.
1: And oftentimes at these injection sites, you have staff who are working there who are. So good and so supportive that you have patients or clients or visitors asking for help, as you mentioned when we were talking earlier, that they come to the determination on their own, they need help, they need a change, they can't sustain the model.
4: Yeah, it's sort of uh, a piece of harm reduction that does not receive enough attention. Very often, harm reduction facilities are a gateway to treatment facilities. People go there to use drugs or go there to obtain a clean needle. But while they're there, um, they have the opportunity to bump into a nurse. And maybe while they're there, they think, maybe it's time to uh, ask for a little help. And, and so what these facilities do is give them a place to, to ask that question.
1: Well, and I have heard of unofficial harm reduction sites, that there are restrooms in downtown Los Angeles, for example, where Narcan is available. You can be assisted, you can get clean needles, and the staff is equipped to help funnel you to legitimate, you know, safe treatment if you so choose. And it's not really widely publicized, but it's it's there in some places.
4: Yeah, that's uh, happening in New York, too. I saw a piece on CNN about a similar situation where it's bathrooms that people are going to for security. Because there's somebody connected to that bathroom who will, who will check in on them if an overdose occurs there. This, this stuff is happening. Unfortunately, in so many jurisdictions, it's happening underground without any sort of government support. In a lot of jurisdictions in the United States, it's still really controversial to put tax dollar money behind this. So volunteers have taken this mission on. Volunteers are responding on their own dime, on their own hours uh, to the overdose epidemic. And that's amazing. Like it really is so inspirational, but it also should not be the case. These programs should be run by the government.
1: I agree. And as a mom, I have two young adult children myself. When I look at clients that come in for treatment, I think that's somebody's child. And if that were my child, it was in the care of somebody else how would I want them to be treated you know so I think if we approach the problem with more love kindness empathy compassion and care and see ourselves as our brother's keeper which I know might be controversial to say but if you're doing well and the person next to you is doing well then that rubs off on me then I'm gonna do better you know
4: that's, that's an interesting point because mothers played a huge role in the, in the conversation around insight that Vancouver had in the early 2000s. And it was mothers who went on the radio, you know, radio talk, talk radio programs and television and said, my son is addicted to drugs and I want an injection site in Vancouver so that if I can't find him in the middle of the night, I have somewhere to look and he has somewhere to, or she has somewhere to be safe. And again, responding to fentanyl, mothers across Canada are playing a really strong advocacy role for harm reduction in this conversation.
1: Well, power to the mamas, <laughs>
4: you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, we're noisy, for, I think, with good reason. You know, we want our children and everybody's children to be safe and have the opportunity to to lead a good and, and happy life. And at least uh, the possibility, the the opportunity, you know somebody to uh, get help and then make those decisions once they're more stable we've run out of time travis lupic come back and hang out with me this is such an important topic and i want to give more air to it it's critical to our well-being to learn more about travis's work and the book fighting for space how a group of drug users transformed one city's struggle with addiction please visit www.fightingforspace.com on twitter travis lupic can be found at t lupic and on facebook T. Lupick as well. Travis, thank you so much. Please, please come back.
4: Thank you so much for having me anytime.
1: All right. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypers kamen and my guest today, Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman, Mike Long, and Travis Lupik, sending you kind thoughts, kinder wishes, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day.
0: Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on TokiNet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.